how impossible and terrible that is for people who are trying to be, get discovered or climb some sort of hierarchy these days. It's, uh, we have a saying that it's like, if you, if you suck the devil's dick, you have to be ready to swallow some fiery cum. <laughs> <laughs> Very well, elegantly put. I love uh, it. That might be Guitar Wank's new uh, logo right there. Yeah, man. Yeah. <laughs> you mind if we steal that one? <laughs> Go ahead. Danny, have you found that after all these years uh, that traveling all over the country from East Coast to West Coast, that basically we're all the bloody same? Like, we all want the same thing. We all enjoy music. Do you, do you, do you no, we're not, we're not the same. Some people are fucking awesome and some people are terrible. It's music, too. Some players are amazing and some suck. But with your fans, do you find there's a common, a common ground with them that you're yeah, I love them. They all love our music. <laughs> they're, they're, a great, they're a great specimen of humanity. You know, they're, I mean, I feel, I feel like we have amazing fans. You know, I mean, our music, and I feel like Scott's music too, and, you know, Bruce's music too. It's like, uh, you know, it, the beautiful thing about playing intense, you know, soloing intensely is that uh, it puts people in, fly, in fight or flight mode. They can't just sit there and drink and talk over it. You know, you just, they have to like get into it or leave, you know, cause it's loud and it's intense. And I love that. Like, I just, I love seeing, you know, my favorite thing, which happens a lot is seeing like the, the hot girl that's into the first guitar solo. You know what I mean? Like, it's like, she's like runs to the first, like, woohoo. Right. And then she's just like, I see the shift in her eyes. It's like, oh my God, it's going to continue. It's, like, <laughs> it's not going to stop, is he? The song's not starting, you know? And then she has like, she's like, oh no, like this whole thing was like, look at me, but like, it's, he wants them to look at him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, one for it's, us. It's I just, the, it's the best. It's the best feeling. <laughs> That's awesome, man. But, Scott, I got to tell you about, uh, and all of you guys, Bruce, too, it's like part, part two of the story of like how Alan made our drummer quit. The year after, they had us back at that same festival, uh -huh. right? The Jefferson City Jazz Festival. Uh huh. And the lady that ran it, uh, she was like on the mic emceeing this thing in front of like hundreds of people. And she goes, here's the band, like just being a fucking cunt. She's like, here's the band from last year who, like, what happened to your drummer and bassist? What? They were sick? And Danny is like, you know, standing over the saxophone, is like, they're dead. And she's like into the mic. She's like, they're dead? And everybody's like, oh, you hear this thing? And it's like, and he, and he goes, they're dead to us. And she goes, they're dead to you? And he literally, there's a video of it. You see the cameraman just laughing. Like, you see the frame just going up and down. Oh, man. <laughs> Instant oh. karma, bitch. <laughs> oh, that's great. Oh man! Oh, I'm sorry, Alan did that to, you, to your drummer. Oh, no, no, it was it was for the best. That it guy worked was, out, I think. Oh, yeah. our our new drummer is just amazing. We oh, that's yeah, great. We were lucky. Hey, enough. Daddy, are you going? I mean, with touring that that hard, are you going kind of nuts? Or it sounds like you've been able to work around the COVID and no, we play. yeah, we've just been able to like basically stay afloat financially me and danny you know through 
these COVID tours, but it's not the same. Yeah, I'm going nuts. It's, uh, it's not easy. No. I mean, it, it's really a change. And uh, we were, when COVID hit in March, we were on tour heading down to play cruises. We were going to do Cruise to the Edge with uh, Yes. And then after that, we were going to do the On the Blue with Moody Blues. And, you know, oh, wow. going up. Like I, and COVID was already, the rumors were starting. And I was like, I was just dying to shake Garfunkel's hand and be the guy who killed Garfunkel, like with COVID. But that didn't end up happening. Uh, but, you know, I'm, I'm kidding. Uh, yeah, so we're March 14th. Every day, like, was the last, every venue we were playing, heading down there, like in Columbus, Ohio. This was like the last day they were open because they were all like just doing this. And we got as far as Columbia, uh columbia south carolina and then the own they had like their second case of covid in town the owner was like freaking out and after that we just drove straight shot home and every everything was done you know the whole everything was just ended is like march 15th i think it was really the last show and yeah i mean it's uh it's really a big shift in my life i mean i've never practiced so much like i mean had so much time to practice but practicing at home doesn't alone is doesn't get you so much better you know it's like it's a balance between between practicing and playing because you know like playing live is the arena where you test the hypothesis of practicing against reality you know it's like you just see if that thing works but like there's so many licks that like sound incredible over like a backing track or hand motions you think you use but once you're standing up and the air is moving and you're playing with people it's like some stuff just doesn't stick to your playing yeah you know? yeah so, yeah going through man i mean it's like for for me practicing that's why well i don't know i don't know if anybody would agree with this but when i practice with a backing track I don't even really think it's me playing. I watch TV while I do it because really all I'm doing, it's muscle memory that I'm practicing more than anything else because creativity to me comes from listening to others. Mm -hmm. and, and since I have nobody to listen to, but Steve Jobs on the backing tracks, it doesn't <laughs> give me much input and I don't really feel that creative. So my practicing as far as chops practicing is just, sort of mindless it's just sort of like okay let's go through the things that i play just so i don't forget them you know i don't want to forget all my lines and the stuff that i do but it's not in a, any kind of a creative way it's more just like a a a, a hands thing just yeah. like keep the chops up keep my hands fluid and don't let atrophy set in but when it comes to be creative that's where i go into a whole other mode and think more about composing or think more about doing things that have to do with harmony that don't have to do with live playing. They just have to say, well, okay, I can transcribe an amazing piece of music and learn some harmony from it. And that's a valuable way for me to grow as a musician. It doesn't really, it's, it, it is practicing, I guess, but it's a different kind of practicing. Sure. What, what do you do, Bruce? Practicing. <laughs> yeah. What, what do you, what do you I, practice? I gotta say, uh, like Scott, I'm getting older. So, you know, a lot of it's just, you know, keeping from getting worse. You know what I mean? Yeah. You're a young guy, Danny. When we were your age, we practiced to get better. When you mm -hmm. get our age, we practice to keep from getting worse. <laughs> that is a fucking scary but, notion. But, but uh, I just have to tell you guys, I don't agree with what 
your basic philosophy is. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> for me, uh, I hate backing tracks. I think if you want to, if you want to, basically inject your your music with lack of interest and energy and humanity and imagination put on backing tracks and that will pretty much just basically suck the life out of you i agree um, i luckily for me kind of timing wise over the years before this i've had a solo project you know that's more not really a band project it's just playing solo mm-hmm. and doing things around playing solo, telling stories while I'm soloing, entertaining people, you know, that kind of thing. So uh, for me, this natural progression of just being alone and working on stuff, I'm constantly creative and finding new. There's so much sound in my head that I can't get to that, you know, put myself in a situation of playing a tune in a certain style or a certain key or writing a new tune and playing it, you know, or playing along with a record or playing along with a metronome. Mm-hmm. This, you know, is for me, it's the same as playing a gig and it's just as inspiring. And actually I feel like these six months because I've not had the touring, I've not had all the time in my car racing to a gig. I've not had somebody else's gig where I have to practice their music or an audition or a record date where I have to play that music. And I've really been afforded the, the, the time just to get into what I want to hear. This is the first time I've ever been able to do this since I was like 16 and 17 and learning how right. to play. I mean, for this amount of time. And so for me, this has been an incredibly creative and stylistically, uh, you know, explosive, imaginative time for me. And I, and I really feel that emerging from this, even though I'm not sure it's over yet, I do feel like I'm emerging from it somehow. Yeah. Um, are you for playing me, gigs now? I'm already hearing a different musician. I mean, I've, I've made those TV shows on YouTube and, and I mm-hmm. watched my, the, the evolution of my playing and I wasn't really even aware of it. It was just, I was going for a sound. I mean, yeah. I was just, you know, evolving and not trying to control it. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't have my other peers who were like, well, this is the hip thing now or this is the way I'm going to get more gigs if I do this shit or whatever. You know, I didn't have any of those pressures involved in my thought process. But you don't, you don't feel a difference like not having somebody watching, you know, it's like, even if it's intimate. But yes, I do. But I mean, I have had times where I've been playing now. Mm -hmm. You. Yeah. Gigs. Yeah. Like, uh, yeah. Small gigs. And so, uh, and of course, like I say, I I was doing a TV show twice a week. So I Mm -hmm. am playing in front of people. You know, and actually every morning on Instagram, I do a chorus every day. Right. You know, so I am playing and granted, I'm not getting the feedback directly in the room from the audience, which I love dearly. Believe right. me, don't get me wrong. That's a big thing, especially for a person like me who tells jokes and does all this kind of stunts while I'm playing. Mm-hmm. That's a big thing. But at the same time, the music's enough for me. And, yeah. you know, and I am getting better. And I, and I like last night I was hanging with a, group of people and I played yeah and there has been no actually I have changed and I've gotten better I'm like kind of like watching and listening to myself going wow this is the effect of this experience and and in a way as jazz musicians that's kind of what the people who gave us this music expect of us sure you know 
we get a set of changes and we create the music, you know what mm -hmm. I mean? And every evolution and every societal thing that happens and every political, cultural, whatever, if, if we move to a new country, all these things sort of, you know what I mean? Affect the output of what we decide to create. Sure. I, sure. I, I, I have to just jump in and say, and call bullshit on one thing that you're saying <laughs> is that, that works for you because you're playing solo. Yeah. But if you're playing with the bass player and drummer every night, and that's what you do, and then all of a sudden you're not. Right. Hey, that's a different story. Well, yeah. Because, because, because I'm not going to become a solo guitar player just because of COVID. I have the desire to be a solo guitar player. I, I was not a guitar player. Well, you know, but are you calling bullshit or are you saying it doesn't apply to you? It doesn't <laughs> apply to me because you okay, said... Okay, but then you're not calling it bullshit. What you said is that I don't agree. Yeah. You don't agree with it for me or for you? No, you said I don't agree. In other words, like you were saying you don't agree with what Danny's saying. I, I mean, for me, yeah, I don't agree with it. Sure. Well, no. it, I think a better way to word it would say it doesn't apply to me rather than I don't agree, you know, because what, because what he's saying, what are you Donald Trump now? Is right for you. You know, I like a bit of debate last well, night. I, I will, I will oh. say for, for me, I, I totally get both. I, I do spend about an hour to two hours a day playing like, you know, Django tunes, no backing track, just solo guitar while reading comments and talking to people and, you know, singing tunes, no metronome, no nothing. So I, I can relate to this thing of playing standards and just, uh, you know, playing time and, and generating time and ha the freedom and, and inspiration that comes from that. But I do miss playing a strat with gain, mm -hmm. and, which so does not like you can do it for a second in a show, like play a little chord solo thing. But that texture is just. It, it doesn't work on its own, you know, well, so. Yeah, what I'm saying is that I love my backing tracks and the reason that I love them and I don't believe what Bruce is saying that they suck the life out of my music is because I'm constantly <laughs> trying new ideas all the time and trying to play stuff that I've never played before over my backing tracks. And I notice that the backing tracks help me not only help keep my time well, because they are, in essence, a metronome. Mm -hmm. And if I look at it in one way, they're no different than playing with a real bass and drummer. But what is different, the main thing that's different, is there's no communication between me and the bass player and drummer. And that is a big part of what I do, the yeah. interplay between the bass and drums. But that's the only thing that's gone. I, I would say if, if you say there's no difference and you just pointed out like the biggest difference in music. <laughs> uh, I think, no, I think but I mean, that does it just because you're not having interplay with the bass player and drummer doesn't mean that you can't come up with new ideas and new ways to execute those ideas and come up with brand new stuff to play. Yeah. You said, you said it's just a different, it's a different type of thing you're working on. And then that's exactly what I suggested is in yeah. fact, you know, I mean, of course, you, I mean, we know 
you know, you've been playing, you've, you've been shedding, even with backing tracks or whatever. You get out on the road with the band, and all of a sudden, you got to get your new sea legs with the new guys and how the sound is going. And you sure. got it all going good, and then you get into a new club, and everything's changed, and you still have to find that thing that works for that moment. Of course. And the next night, you're tired, and you got a bad sound, man, and you got to find <laughs> yeah, right. that moment. No, really. I mean, we're all dealing with. I mean, the, this music, at least if we're going to call it jazz, is based on improvisation and dealing with your environment and preparing for everything and being creative in the moment, you know, and dealing with the well, shit you get and the, and, the, and the great things you get, right? And one of those moments is sitting at home playing with your backing track. Yeah. Well, or, or not. <laughs> uh, know, I will so, say there's, 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 know, there's one. I mean, to me, there's a, if you're sitting at home playing with your backing track, that can be a very productive thing to do. But I play with a metronome. I'm not yeah. saying you shouldn't. You're, I'm, my, my point is, is that you're playing I mean, solo guitar, so you don't need bass and drums. All right, all right. Danny, I feel, I feel, I feel like, I feel like this fight has happened before. Is this like, is this like a deep prehistoric fight that we keep returning? No, no, to? no, no, no. It's like we, we, we sometimes have disagreements on the way. Usually, it's about the way something's said more than what's being said. Because I think we're both saying the same thing, which we usually are. But what I'm saying is that since I don't play solo guitar and have no desire to play sure. solo guitar, I play with bass players and drummers. That's what I usually do. So when I practice my own tunes, and a lot of the times when I practice the tunes that I write, what I'm looking for to improve is I'm looking for new ways to mm -hmm. play my tunes i'm looking for new voicings i'm looking for new phrases i'm looking for new mini compositions within solos you know something to emerge yeah i'm i'm, I'm looking just to play the music a, as many different ways as i can so yeah. having backing tracks i don't think i would be as productive without them because they help me imagine that the bass player and drummer are there supporting me as I play all these different things. Now, when I do that on stage, of course, it's going to be different because mm -hmm. they're going to react to the stuff I do and their reactions to the stuff I do will make me play different and it'll be a whole other ball game. But I'm just uh, saying, while I'm here at home, I don't mind using backing tracks to practice. They help. There's, one, there's one thing that I will say that you're not taking into account, which is kind of the issue of placement uh which which i think is really the the one the big difference between backing tracks and playing with people which is when you are always kind of uh hat you know kind of pulling yourself along for a ride that's going without you when you're right. playing you know and 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 that, that there's that the thing that it's just going not listening to you is not solely and and that's and, and same could be said about a metronome there's just something about the about generating time rather than following a machine that is intrinsically destructive and i think some some of those old records they sound so good cuz they're free of that, you know, and, and we're, we're just such bitches. We're just addicted to that ability to edit. Well, that's no. why I love Elvin Jones so much because he's so flexible. And when you listen to him play, like with, with whoever you hear the time, it's, it's, there's a big difference between saying someone doesn't have good time because they're slowing down and speeding up or saying that someone has a flexibility that's beautiful. Yeah, well, we're talking about swinging at this point, you know. Yeah. You know just, at least I mean, the quality of swing, you know. Right. I mean, I'm not saying swing style, 
I'm saying the essence of swing. What what it means to swing, yeah. You yeah, like like a fucking leaf in the wind. I mean, one thing machine that never make up for playing with the real person. I mean, there's yeah. no, and we, we all know that. No one would dispute that. Um, <laughs> one thing you know, the difference between backing tracks and a metronome is you can actually hear the metronome in various placements of the time. Mm-hmm. You can shade it, whereas a backing track is very definitive about where the groove is. Yeah. So, so that thing you're talking about, that flexibility and the ability to like lay back, you know, hear that two and four, or if I don't know if you put it on all four beats or if you put it on mm-hmm. two and four, but if you like, you put it on two and four, then you know you can hear that a little bit behind the beat. You can hear it wherever you want, and therefore, it's not quite the same as a backing track. No, I, I agree. It's allow- basic. It allows. It's completely different. It's got so much more space than a backing track. Right. It allows you to shade the time right. without the influence of the rhythm section. But yeah. See, I'm not thinking about that. For me, I'm thinking about the backing track. Is even though it's a poor representation of the band. It's enough of a represent, representation of the band where I can try some new stuff and yeah. see if it works. But I think it, it, it also... The thing I think about backing tracks that's good, and I'll say this, especially if you're the kind of person that's used to playing in a louder situation, mm-hmm. there's a different physicality to playing with a lot of sound going on around you than not a lot of sound going around you. Right. So, you know, to have the have that much sound to... to get in front of, to get on top of, whatever you want to say, to, to be in and to you know, have to get a sound with that much going on. That's another great thing about backing tracks, which of course I'm not really interested in because my thing is usually either trio, duo or solo. And, sure. and I don't have that, you know, really dynamically, I don't have that fight that you, yeah. know, you guys have with the style of music. There's there's a, something that Scott does, I think, amazingly, and you know, people like Michael Brecker do it too. But I think it's really it really is growing up in this era where you've always kind of had backing tracks, always had metronomes as a part of your practice, which is you can play these lines that have this plowing kind of momentum, especially like those sixteenth note lines, because you know how to put yourself in the right place in front of the track, you know, and it's a very subtle thing. And it's not, you know, it's kind of the opposite of what Schofield does. You know, it's just like that, like, you know, you just know how to play those kind of beboppy lines that just have this bulldozing feeling. And that really has to do with, uh, but I mean, I'm guessing that probably there are some players you play with where it's harder to make that happen. You know, there if they are. kind of dig I mean, into the groove you know, a little of bit. Of course, you know, what I, what I try to, would say would be my ultimate situation is when you're playing in a room and you can have anything you want to happen right you can play super soft you can play really loud you can play really hard you can play really soft you can play long notes you can play short notes music is all about balance right and without the balance every time every shade of balance that gets taken away from you by a circumstance takes the music down a notch. Oh, I've played with people that took every circumstance. Oh, yeah. Totally agree. Totally agree. <laughs> One of the great things about solo, in fact, is is you have, really, the, you have the entire, it's up to you, unless, of course, you have a sound man or acoustics of a room. That's but y'all are so lonely. 
you get all the money. You're like, you're like the dude from Kung Fu just roaming the no, earth. No, no, I mean, hey, you know, I would <laughs> say like, that I'm one of the most social people I know. And I think, <laughs> you know, it's just like, I don't need to play with them all the time. You know, yeah, I don't marry them all. But he, that dude, people. you know, he, he died like you know jerking off in a hotel room while hanging himself it's who, just who <laughs> the dude from kung fu kill bill oh you know, like, david, <laughs> david carradine yeah david carradine you know yeah well, what band did he play in well <laughs> You go, you go on a journey alone. A it ends up man. some fucked up way. Opening <laughs> <laughs> up for Tommy Emmanuel, right? I'm just saying, Bruce, it'll be a shame to watch you go that way. Yeah, on that solo guitar. You know, I mean, I don't, I don't want to see you like hanging by a bird with your dick out. Just. <laughs> you know what? You know, I'd rather be hanging by a bird with my dick out than not hanging by a bird with my dick out. That's actually the best way to go. <laughs> let me why where it all begin let, let me tell you why i agree with everything you said after i called bullshit on some of it let me tell you why i agree with it because i do play like half of my practice time is spent playing guitar by myself so so when i know that and when i get into that zone and i get really creative playing guitar by myself I notice those spaces and I know how those spaces affect what I'm doing. And here's the difference. I have no desire to play what I'm playing when I'm sitting there by myself in front of people. I have, it, that's not why I'm doing it. Mm -hmm. I'm doing it for a completely different reason. It's not an act. It's not something I'm ever going to do as a show. Mm -hmm. I'm doing it because I want to understand and realize the harmonic possibilities of where I can go with nothing, no, nobody telling me where to go. No charts, no tunes, no nothing. I just want to sit there and play, and I want to play music that I am inventing right there on the spot all by myself. That's my goal. That's beautiful and, and very nerdy. So what I'm saying is the fact that I'm not doing it as a show <laughs> and that I'm not trying to prepare it to play it in front of people makes me not care yeah. if the time is right or if the time is, in fact, most of it's rubato. Yeah. So, so there is no time most of the time. So, so I, I, I don't think about things like metronomes and things about things about time because if I was playing solo guitar, like you do, I would definitely want there to be parts of it that swing and to, mm -hmm. and to have time, whether it was a straight eighth feel or a swing feel or a shuffle feel or a funk feel. I would definitely want to get into areas that, that where I'm like the band. I have to take the place of the drummer. I'm going to take the place of the bass player and I'm going to put on a show with my guitar where it's going to be interesting on all levels, rhythmically, uh, blah, blah, blah. But the kind of, the kind of solo guitar I'm playing, I'm mainly just interested in the harmony, not the rhythm. Okay, Mr. Right. Henderson, that's your time. That's your two minutes. No, that's my two <laughs> minutes. Daddy, you want to reply? I agree with what Bruce is saying. Yeah. When you have all that space around you with no interference. With I'm no just playing music in the situation yeah. that I'm in. I'm I, sorry. I, 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 I'll, I I'll, I'll apologize for it. <laughs> it yeah. I like Danny. I, I was, I was uh, you know, I just did, did these two tours where it was, you know, me and a saxophone. And I was singing standards. We were playing like, you know, all these kind of things. And Danny would solo over me playing like the palm stuff. 
And then I would solo on air like a homeless person. And uh, Jesus Christ, man, it's like, and, and really I, you know, when I'm doing solo guitar stuff, especially like when you're playing tunes, you can't just go rubato. You have to swing the whole way through. Yeah. And, it, and it fucks up your playing too, because especially if you come from a place where you're used to playing with metronomes and backing tracks, you're used to doing things to time. You used to, you know, place your notes a certain way, play some phrases behind, some ahead, do this kind of really dance that all the, you know, swing and bebop guys do. And when you have to play the time on top of it, kind of like coming out of a saxophone solo, like, you know, you're playing like, I don't know, I'm confessing that I love you. And it's like your turn to play. It's like, you know, you can thicken up the texture by throwing in chords, but like, I think there's, there's a certain kind of prison of playing almost, I would say a ragtime style where you're really just playing the time and soloing on guitar where it, it can feel very lonely, like very, like, I don't know. I wish there was a bass there or like, you know, some brushes. Like if I'm, if I'm playing a solo show and there's no other people there, it's different, but like a duo show with a saxophone player, it's rough. It's rough <laughs> to, to just well, like. Benny, when did you get into the gypsy jazz stuff? How long you, when did that come into your playing? Um, my ex-wife bought me like this cheap D-hole, uh, that like in 2012 or 13, right. so since 2013. Uh, and I've just, and then I'm, you know, it, it came about cause we were just, we needed to make money on tour somehow. And we were just like, well, let's just fucking, let's play on the street. Let's do it. And then we just like, dude, you want, you want to, you want to get tough, play on the street. You talk about room. This room sounded bad. Try no room. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking open air. How? No playing on the street, man. That's that's really a great place to learn to Dude, get a sound, isn't it? That shit makes you, first of all, makes you project. I mean, I, I had to teach myself from scratch, like, you know, the rest stroke technique. Yeah. And uh, that wasn't easy. That took like four years, you know, to really be able to play like the same, you know, like a lot of the same linear stuff and figure it out. And like I told you earlier, it's like, uh, <laughs> gypsy jazz is the funniest style, dude. It's like, to think how, first of all, Django like never called himself a gypsy jazz player. You know, he was just, in his mind, he was right. just playing jazz. Yeah. You know. That was his version of jazz. But like, I can imagine like, if I'm dead, like and in 50 years, everybody like listens to my records and I'm like, oh, like, I'm a Jew fusion player. <laughs> Just like start dressing up like me, grow some love handles, get like <laughs> strad and just right. it's I mean, the most it's the most hilarious thing. Everybody like, does that shit, you know what I mean? Well, they but there's nothing, and they make a style out of it, and then they make rules for it, and then you know I mean, then there's, there's clothing like. that you're supposed to wear, you know, and I mean, then there's a haircut you're supposed to have, and a beard you're supposed to have, and you got to sure. wear a ring, and then yeah, da 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 da, da and then you got to have a drug habit. There was never a monotheistic style that's, yeah. that as, that's as extreme as Gypsy Jazz. It's one dude. It's yeah. literally one dude and his minions. It's like, I don't know, like Scientology, or not Scientology, the other one. It's like Mormons or something. It's like the Mormons <laughs> of jazz. You're right, it's a cult. What did you say? Scott? I, I don't know who you were talking to. Bruce was going to say something, so I don't oh, know. Sorry. What did you say, Scott? I said uh, we have, uh, we've had quite a few gypsy jazz guitar players come to our school. And yeah. some very famous ones. Mm -hmm. and, and I'm sorry that I can't remember their names, but, <laughs> but 
Because they're all the same guy. Well, you know, they all sound kind of the same. They're playing the same shit. They're playing, <laughs> yeah, to me, to, to my ears, because, you know, I mean, what do I know about gypsy jazz? Nothing. So, of course, they're going to sound the same to me because I haven't listened to the style enough to, to, to differentiate between two different guys. I, I don't know enough about the music. It, to it's know all, it's an Elvis convention. I'm telling you, that's what they're up to. There's like 30s Django. So that's like skinny Elvis with the sunglasses. And then there's like the steamer Django. That's like fat Elvis with the banana sandwich with the onesie. It's like, it's just, it's well, literally that. Yeah, I never well, thought of it like that, but that is pretty funny. We have had like funny. three or four of those guys come to MI. And I actually enjoyed listening to them because I thought it was really fun to listen to them. But I, I, I really noticed the the big similarities, and 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 that that I didn't really wasn't able to tell much of a difference between one guy from another, except one guy came with an acoustic guitar, one guy came with an electric guitar, one guy came with a you know they come with different axes, so of course they have different tones. Yeah, right? well, I mean, if you take ten of like the nerds from like Indonesia and South America that imitate you. And <laughs> And like yeah, put them all in a room together yeah. and they all like have like different hairdos that you had over the years. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking calculator yeah. watch and Hawaii t-shirt, Scott Henderson. Yeah. I wouldn't be able to tell them apart either. So, yeah. Danny, what, playing the gypsy jazz, how has that affected your other, your original music? Is that affected? Is it spilled over? Yeah, because when you learn the, when you learn the reststroke shit, uh, for me, it was just the perfect bridge back into like SRV uh, because that's how he gets that sound, you know, and just being able to play with that kind of motion, with that, with the wide motion that comes from a rotation of You mean this, that, uh, that percussive kind of sound they use? That, the thing that everybody, you know, like the the priesthood cast of uh of music uh called gear page uh you know well uh you know they all they often will post ridiculous shit about like you know he played 27 gauge strings on a <laughs> whatever you know like some shit that makes no sense and like you can only you can only get this tone with a dumbbell even though like he played cheap amps half his life you know but there's this certain kind of metallic spank that you just hear. That's just, he gets it on a 12-string guitar, he gets it on anything, and it's just really momentum. You know, it's just that thing of throwing your wrist and cutting through a string in one motion and just connecting to the next string and just mm -hmm. having that kind of picking motion. So Hendrix and him, everybody that uses what they call the, the monkey hand, the lady hand, whatever, they get this, they use a lot of left hand muting to relax the rest of the guitar. But I don't know, the way I really think about guitar, about right hand technique is that um, your wrist kind of, if you think about, if you compare guitar to a piano, you have that dampener pedal, you know, with like when it's disengaged, the felt is kind of away from the string, just relaxing everything. You press the mute pedal, it brings it right to them and you take it away. It goes back, you know, you get this sympathetic vibration gypsy jazz is the only style of guitar i know that has zero muting technique you don't mute with your right hand you don't mute with your left hand you're also not amplified so all that soup of harmonics from the other string just acts like that reverb of a piano it's basically always pressing the sustainer pedal and that's why you keep your wrist in the air this style that most people use which is a flatter hand 
that kind of acts like a neutral position piano where you're just there to control this, you know, sympathetic vibration of the string. Every, you know, George Benson, doesn't matter. Like if you're playing arch stop, you get that, you know, so you, you play an E here, the E there starts shaking. You gotta, you gotta control it. And when you're playing high gain, you've got to be closer. You've got to control everything because everything has bloom. So being in those situ, you know, n learning how, to, figuring out how to really play lines that way made my technique kind of a hybrid of the two. So a lot of times I can get a more aggressive sound and let things ring out, but then I can come back and control it. That's cool, man. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah, it's a, it, I never even thought about it that way. You know, students will ask me, how the hell are you playing with so much gain yet it sounds controlled and I'm looking at my hands and I'm going, Oh, that's why it's happening because I'm actually, while I'm playing this string, I'm using another finger to mute another string and I don't even realize I'm doing it. It's just something right. that it happened over the years that you learn how to do when you play with high gain. You yeah. Know, it's, yeah. It's, it's not really in the right hand. It's more in the left hand than the right hand. You're muting strings as you play without right. even knowing it. Right. It's like, oh, am I really doing that? Oh, I guess I am because that E string isn't ringing, so I must be muting it. <laughs> right. Okay. Yeah. Right. So, but I never, I never knew that about gypsy jazz, where where you don't mute anything and everything rings. That's why it's so. It has that you know kind of lush sound all the time, and that's why they have such. It's such a nightmare to amplify these guitars. I just bought uh, this bad ass guitar just so badass it's like uh it's called a mustache uh that's the name of the company it's a company from the netherlands and it's like a d-hole with the original resonator so it's not like the tricone thing it's the actual mcafery system and a lot of those old gypsy jazz guitars they you know they they didn't really work right and it was too complicated and expensive to build so they used to, to take them out of the d-holes but it has it and it's it's fucking loud, you know. But what's uh, the action like playing gypsy jazz? Is it higher or lower than normal? It's certainly higher than my sewer. Uh, it's like if you measure at the twelfth, it's very straight to the neck. Uh -huh. You know, you, you don't you don't have a lot of relief in the neck, and uh, you have a zero fret to kind of give you a little a tall zero fret to kind of give you a little more action at the beginning, and it's about two point five millimeters for me and on the bass side and a tiny like 2.3 on the treble side um so normal yeah yeah it's, you have you have to get it you have to get it high enough again it's it, it's a hard until you get the right a lot of people are trying now to learn this style without learning the right hand technique to just kind of make the notes and the rhythms happen but i don't know man it's like that's not I, I hate to be a purist because I really am not, but like, if you like this thing, it's, it tends to be not an artistic choice. It's just a lazy choice. A lot of these people want to get the sound. They just realize how, how big of a project that is. It really takes years uh, to get this kind of control where you, also there's the thing where since your pick angle is all, always has a 45 degree slant forward, always, you know, then, uh, when you're doing the rest stroke, you're cutting through the string, but you really are never in a position to, to, to lead with an upstroke because you would literally have to jump the string and do this kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, uh, That's hard. <laughs> well, it's hard. The secret of gypsy jazz is something that almost nobody talks about, which is called the whip. 
there's really three types of strokes. There's the rest stroke where you go in one motion, you rotate your wrist outwards like this and you just let it fall. The upstroke is the reversal of that. And then there is this one move that's really the secret of the whole thing, which prepares you for a, a nut, it's basically for two consecutive downstrokes. And what you do is you basically play a rest stroke, but you don't rest on the string. You just whip your elbow up to where you end up above the guitar. So you can go pa-pow, right? The dao. And all those triplet licks are like rest, up, whip, right? Pa-pa-pa-pa-pa-pa-pa-pa-pa-pa. And so you have a lot of consecutive downstrokes. But if you're going from the thin to the thick string, going descending, you're playing whipping motion. So an arpeggio up would be sweep, 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 sweep. But when you get to the high string, it's, it's going to be whip, 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 right? So it's all downstrokes. But you get, you get this I'd be talking this. with you about gypsy guitar. <laughs> <laughs> I have too much free time. Oh, man, Danny, and you're, you're doing this, and you're doing this with what? 10,000 people watching a day? Yeah, it's fucking crazy. It makes no sense. None of it makes any sense. Wow. I've got to yeah. tune in and watch this, man. Where do we see this? What? Just on Facebook. Do, where do we see but, this? Where do we catch Danny Raven? Fa Facebook.com slash Marvin Music. But the best okay. thing to do is listen to our actual music, which uh, I actually, you know, I mean, I, I've been figuring this out for like five years with like thousands of people watching every day. But uh, it's, been, it's, been a, it's been an interesting process. Do you, but, do, you, do you guys have a big following back, back at home in Israel? Ah, uh, not really. These these people are morons. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, they're okay. They're all right. I'm just kidding. Uh, but but no, it's it's mainly the states. And uh, we, what about we've been very focused on the states? Right. What about Europe and uh, outside of the states? We never made it over there because of exactly what Scott said. You have to do it with agents. And every time we got a deal, they're like, "Showed us what the deal meant." Like you're playing three nights a week. We're like, it's like what? <laughs> it's like that. Right. that it's like, how are we going to make this work? You that's, know? And that's, they're like, that's we don't know. So that's why it's so hard, even for some of the biggest names to do. Like, yeah. I've seen, I've seen uh, you name and I've seen Schofield tours where he's only playing four nights a week or three nights a week. Then I've seen also tours where it's packed every night, where he's playing every single night. And yeah. I mean, it, I think it's just, uh, it's luck, you know, it's like being at the right place, the right time. There's, there's many times where a promoter in Italy will say, well, I'd love to have you, but um, I'm sorry that Wednesday night that you want to play, I can't, I, I can't unbook the band I've already booked. So there's yeah. an item. Well, I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't know how we're, so I don't know how we're ever going to make it out there. Maybe God will give us a virus that wipes up old people. Well, <laughs> you know, <laughs> when we were first going over to Europe, we were going over there to play two gigs at a time. And wow. And, and, and then we would come home and then another month later, we would go play another two or three gigs and it just kept building and building. And I think we had been playing in Europe at least two years on and off before we got our first tour. Yeah. It was actually a bona fide like three week tour. Yeah. You know? So it took some time, man. I mean, we, yeah. it's just like what you did in the States, we did in Europe just getting your foot in the door and then just gradually building an audience and blah, blah, blah. It's the same shit. Yeah. But I don't understand why you didn't go to the South. Why didn't you try? Like, like what? Well, like, because I told you the agent did not know anybody. Mm, like, right. like he just didn't have a connection in say a place like Nashville. 
so in those days you would have it's just uh, of course we would have we would have drove to nashville in a heartbeat it's only what how many hours from dc it's not that far you know yeah it's a good drive but it's a good drive it's pretty impressive drive it's doable i mean we have denny Denny, you should bring um next to minneapolis without a gig so we could drive from dc maybe maybe you should manage manage scott and bruce's Danny offered to book you. I remember that, but you wanted guarantees. Yeah. You, well, you were like, we need know. guarantees. We're like, we don't know. How, we don't know how you're going to draw. Okay. okay. If, you can't, if you can promise me $400 a year, I'll sign. <laughs> that's, no pro- that's a kind of guarantee we can live with. Yeah. That's a- <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, man, it's, uh, it's it's the the funny thing about this reality is that there are no guarantees, and like if you get a if you get a guarantee and don't draw and the bar owner loses money, what all you've done is made a few hundred dollars. You're not gonna even fill and burn the bridge for life. Yeah, you burn a bridge. Yeah. See, that's the thing. That's where I have always tried as a band leader to try to not let happen because I'm always talking to agents and talking to them about like okay, are you sure you're not too charging too much for this gig? Because right. you know as well as I do that if the guy loses his ass on this gig, he's never going to invite us back. Yeah. And you know what? That's one of the things I'm the most proud of. We play the same clubs every single year in all of the world. They, they, they always that. want us back yeah. because we're not charging too much, but yet, I mean, I'm sure he's not making a fortune, but he's not losing money. Right. You know, so so they're having us back because yeah. I know there's some guys, and I don't want to name names. They only play for a certain amount of money a gig, and there's a lot of times they don't get asked back because the promoter lost so much money that he'll never have them back. I mean, it's it's an insane position to put other people in who have a business, you know, because yeah. they they just they have a bar, they have a bar with a stage. It's like this. Very early on in our career, we learned that there are two types of gigs. There's, there's real gigs, hard ticket gigs, like we're, we all participate in now, and there's entertainment gigs. Entertainment gigs mean that the venue owner books you for his personal reason, whether he thinks that that's the vibe of the bar to have original music or whatever, and he pays you a set amount of money to play a set amount of time, usually for no door whatsoever. And those gigs are great when you first start off touring. I mean, what we did, was we just, we, we found one gig in Southern Illinois in a place called Marion that paid $400 for a Friday. It was amazing for us in those days. Amazing, like when we first started. We couldn't believe somebody would pay us so much money to play for like four hours for four people, you know? Wow. And, uh, you know and, and we did it, and then we just looked at their website and we saw a lot of touring bands and we're like, let's look at the websites of those touring bands and we assumed these kind of guys that are in this kind of circuit are probably playing a lot of these kind of places. So that would be a good way to find those kind of gigs, right? Because if they found one, they probably found at least another one. And if you go through every single person on that roster and follow their exact tour, right? And see, you, you're going to come across all the venues eventually, if you exponentially do it, that, all over the States that will pay money, 300 bucks for a Tuesday, in Tulsa, you know, 400 bucks for a Wednesday in, in like Oklahoma City, whatever. Like, you know, just one by one by one, piecing it together. And we did it. The most traumatic move for the band was going from those guarantee entertainment 
thanks to the empty, cold, ticketed venues. That was, a, it was embarrassing because especially like when the, you know, our videos first started coming out, we would like draw four enthusiastic fans that thought we were famous <laughs> to this big room and they just show up and it was just a sad, that was, it felt worse than playing, you know, for like a bunch of drunk people that were just there for the scene, you know, because each one of them felt so bad for us. And it was, we just had to like sit there and eat it night after night, after night, after night, after, for, <laughs> for like two years, you know, it's like sometimes you'd get lucky and there'd be something, but that was the situation for a long time. That was and the it, same situation for us where you'd play it's a the very same situation. town. And if you were lucky, you'd play in a hundred seat, place and you'd have 10 people oh it's it, it, it hits you in the gut when you that, get that on stage happens so many times thus i can't even count yeah i mean that's that's our life that's who we are i mean it's you know that's part of the deal getting kicked in the balls right yeah but that that kick in the balls of like seeing the the fucking the guy who paid like 25 bucks to be there and has all the records and really it's like this and he's you can see the panic in his eyes. He's looking around like, I hope people show up. I hope for, like they're, they want something to happen for you and you yeah, just right. want them to be cool. You just want, like, you just sit back. I'll play for you. Just be cool. Stop, stop this anxious energy. It's the worst. That, that, Danny, that, that's the nightmare. You, um, how did you find, like say, for example, the phone numbers and the addresses of all these bars and all these clubs all over the United States and all these states how did you track these club owners down to talk to them? Well, initially it was phone. That was like 2012, 13, but that died out. There's no more phone. Nobody, nobody will pick up the phone. And it was literally called the place like, Hey, I'm blah, blah, blah. Like, uh, it's like, it's like, I'm the waitress. Like, what are you talking about? It's like, uh, uh, you know, it's just awkward conversations like that to get, to get to the guy. And I always felt like it was that scene in Kill Bill 2 where the guy's like sitting there with the calendar, like Xing things out. And he would just like on a Wednesday, just write Marvin. Uh-huh. <laughs> I just needed to get him to do that. That's so what was the medium that finally worked? Was it email, text? Eventually, what? eventually email and text, you know, but, uh, uh, again, it makes, we make places money. It doesn't make sense for them not to book us. And we don't ask for anything. We just ask for a like great door deal. It's, it's, it's high risk, high gain. A place that will give you a guarantee. Like I'm sure you've had nights where you played martyrs where your guarantee was less money than you made at the door. You know, you, that you didn't even tickle. I don't remember. I, I don't know. <laughs> but I mean, it, must have, it must have happened. You know, when, when Leonardo cuts you a deal, a lot of times you draw more than you're, you know, than, than what yeah. you're asking for. Yeah. And that's I a part. Mean, that, I know it's happened. I just don't remember where. But, but our, our, epiphany, our epiphany moment for this whole thing being viable was opening for Alan because Alan was making so much fucking money. It was crazy. Like Alan was so famous, you know, it, it was really, I've never, 2012, you know, it's like, he was charging a lot of money for tickets. There were 300 people a night, some nights coming to see him. We would like, and I was in charge of the money because I had to make these deposits because nobody trusted him uh, to just, you know, not, not blow it. Uh, so, you know, I was just 
handed these fucking cash envelopes, big ones. And I was like, she's like, Jesus Christ, are we at the same, like, is this, is this the fusion money? You know, it's like in the bag, you know, and just, you know, like $12,000 a night, $10,000 a night, $15,000 a night. We were out for 30 nights, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a lot of money. And, and it just, it clicked to me. It's like, listen, if you bring, you know, whatever, 300 people, you're making a lot of money. Mm-hmm. You know, you're going to make a ton of money. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, it, that, that was really the, the aha moment where I knew it was possible. All you need to do is get famous somehow, uh, you know, or known enough to, make, to, to get to this kind of place where you're just, the business is simple. The business never changed. It changed one time when they invented recordings where you could sell a commodity. But, you know, the business was really, you write music, you play music, you charge for people to, you know, listen to it and watch you do it. And, and it's like, if you eliminate as many, if you keep your pie sliced to the fewer, fewest possible pieces, you can get a relative share to like, you know, whatever Miley Cyrus Beyonce pie that's cut to a million pieces. Right. You know, it's like, you don't know how much money these people are bringing home. But Danny, how much would you guys spend on like, say for now for a gig in normal pre-COVID, how much would you guys spend on advertising? Like what, what kind of dollar amount? Somewhere in the ballpark of fifty to one hundred and fifty dollars a night. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But now, when you say advertising, you're talking about boosted posts on Facebook. Facebook exclusively. I oh. would never print a poster in oh. my life. I would never do it. It's just that, like that. That world is just. It's like even if you walked by a poster, you'd be on your phone. Yeah. <laughs> That's the world I came from. Yeah, I know. The advertising money that was spent, it was the promoter spending money on posters to put all over town. Yeah, well, I mean. That, that's the generation but, I but, but what would you do if the horse and buggy blew a wheel? Well, no, I mean, it often, <laughs> did. it often did. I'm just saying that that was really the only advertisement there was. It's like posters in music stores, posters at music schools. I get it. Posters all over the streets. And that was the way it was done. That and was it, over before we started. Aha. Uh-huh. Interesting. That was over before we started. It's just, uh-huh. again, so, you, you, can, you can, you can, uh, even Facebook now is a tricky place because a lot like the generation that's, you know, the kids now have their own fucking things. Everything's kind of happening quicker. Um, but those motherfuckers are so dumb. They're not going to get fusion anyway. Uh, you know, so. What's, what's your age group that. of your fans? Every, dude, our, our audience is the weirdest blend of people. You see, we have like, we have motorcycle, like, you know, like Hell's Angels type people. We have hippies. We have jazz guys. We have just normal folks. Like, it's, it's just, it's really, just really, really mixed. Uh, what's Jesus. the age demographic generally? Not very young, but sometimes we have like actual kids that take their moms to the show, but really, you know, goes, goes really all the way up. Wow. Um, That's fantastic, man. And it's, yeah, it's, it's very, it's very wide. Um, But yeah, it's, it's been, it's been a strange trip, you know, (laughs) the fucking motorcycle scene. We we were playing, uh, (laughs) there's this venue in New Hampshire uh, called the Chop Shop. at Laconia, New Hampshire. And uh, we played there the first time. We played, this fucking dude 
his name his name is the boss it's how he makes everybody call him like the boss you know and he he like he looks like he has like a top hat he looks like homeless slash uh and uh this fucking guy like he saw us play and he loved us in this venue and he was like god i have this beer tent in laconia uh bike festival it's like the second biggest one after sturgis you guys gotta come play my thing and and they're like, you know, I'll pay you. And this is like in the early days, like, I'll pay you, I'll feed you, I'll do everything. Like, you know, come play this gig. And we canceled a week of tour to play this fucking thing. We, we like drove all the way to Laconia, New Hampshire from Chicago to play a week of shows. It was literally the worst week of my life. It was, it was so fucking bad. Like, it was, uh, we show up and this guy had this idea that he booked us as kind of this in-between band. So there were literally like 60 Skinnerd cover bands booked, right? <laughs> like, and us. That was the only thing. It's just like everybody playing Freebird on repeat and then us. And what he would do is he would have us set up on the lawn by a big stage and he wanted us to play these 20-minute bursts of fusion while the bands were like turning over the stage in between their sets, like all day, and every time we started playing, just everybody was just like, what the fuck is going on? And we we're just like, this is the worst time ever. And he had this food situation, like for the band set up behind the stage. And I don't know if you know anything about the bike world, but it's a very lateral move from uh, stripper to bartender. Like all the bartenders are ex-strippers. And uh, they're all just serving the food and they're very demeaning. To, they're like, really was like, no, no, you wait to eat. And they were feeding their fellow stripper kind first before we ate. We were just like eating like this food. Everything, everything was shitty. And the silver lining, we, have, we, have, we actually have a song called, uh, it's called Dirty Horse. And uh, it's, about, it's about this, this time we, we tell stories too. And that's, that's a big part of our show. We call it story time. Uh, so it's one of our, one of our stories, road stories. And uh, anyway, we get to this, um, this, the boss offered us a place to stay. It's like a lodge on the lake, New Hampshire, very pretty. And we get there late at night after our first day of like playing 20 minute bursts of fusion to bikers and are just really, everybody's just had the worst fucking day. Right. And I opened the door and the guy didn't tell us that we have a roommate and our roommate is a clown for bikers. They have this thing. It's like a rodeo clown. And he's like, not a happy clown. He's a very frowny clown. He has a broken leg and he's just sitting there with his leg on a coffee table in a huge cast, drinking like Jack Daniels from the bottle. And he's like talking eyes and me. It's like, what's up? <laughs> I don't know what's up. Like, this is fucking weird, you know? Anyway, the clown, like it's like 12, our bassist and drummer are like, let's go hang out. So they go, we and Danny go to bed. Those two go to the festival. They pick up these biker chicks and they bring, it to the, bring those two to their room. And, you know, they're, they're just fucking them. Like, they're just like all night, right? It's like, it's fucking loud. It's crazy in there. Like, we wake up in the morning. The boss is like just banging on the fucking door, Right. The, the the clown ratted us out you know he was wow. like he was not like he was not down he was ratting us out for like and and this this fucking guy with the boston accent is just like with fucking top hat and things screaming at us he's like i trusted you guys 
with my fucking cabin and you bring back Dirty Horse. <laughs> <laughs> so we had to name the song Dirty Horse. Awesome. <laughs> Thanks, Jordan. Hey, Daddy. I wanted to ask you a, a quick question about <laughs> sure. this. This. Uh, sorry, this involves Alan, but sure. but you know Garage Mahal, right? Yeah. You know what? You know basically what they kind of did, right? Not sure. Okay. Well, well, this the the there's some parallels between what you guys did and what Garage Mahal did, mm -hmm. but it was playing for kind of a different audience. They were playing for like kind of the hippie jam band people. They were trying to do the Schofield Medeski thing, yeah. Exactly. Uh, well, not quite as, as not quite as jazzy, but mm -hmm. you you know you it was basically for the same people that were doing the amoeba dance in front of we, the stage. We with, play that circuit too. You we're, did we're, play that circuit. We That's are playing that circuit. Act. Like yeah. what's that circuit like? compared to the circuit that you're normally used to playing? Well, I saw a guy peel off his face on a meth binge. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Uh, so were the crowds bigger? You know, in jazz, a lot of times, the person who looks the most miserable at the show is having the best time. And the uh -huh. person who's the most loud and obnoxious up front won't remember it in the morning and uh if you judge if you're on stage judging uh how well you're doing by how much people are dancing you know then then you are gonna have a great time in those circumstances but those people will dance the same way to an alarm clock you know so <laughs> it's uh again I, I love it i love playing those kind of things but it's a different there's zero merch sales they don't have wallets on them. You uh, know what I mean? Of it's course. Like they're, they're just fucking high. They love it. They're having an experience. I, my fantasy is always to just get up on stage like at one of those kind of like, you know, whatever, hookah fest and just 300 people there and be like, hey, we're Marvin. And you're in a loop, 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 in a loop. <laughs> In a loop, and just seem like dropping like flies, just like everybody dying. Loop in a loop. But in a... <laughs> have you played some of those? Have you played some of those like jam band festivals? Like lots, all played lots, lots. Yeah, uh -huh. we, we we are in that scene. So you were in that scene too. That's why I was yeah. asking because you know when I was on the road with Alan and me and Alan and Travis, Alan used to tell us the funniest stories about playing with Garage Mahal for the hippie jam band scene because mm -hmm. he did it for many years and he made a lot of money and sure. that's maybe why he's kind of financially you know wants a lot of money because that that band garage mahal they made a shit load of money there was a like, golden age of that scene too that's over. right it was the golden age of that scene exactly it was it yeah. was like they were taking the place of what's his name when he died the day jerry garcia when jerry garcia died he he threw the ball to garage mahal and bands like garage yeah mahal. fish everybody yeah they kind of took all i mean you had people who were career you know festival junkies <laughs> it's like that that was their business <laughs> they were like you know they would make bracelets and follow like I don't know. I liked some band. You liked Weather Report. Did you see Weather Report 700 times? You know? No, I didn't. <laughs> like, who has yeah. that fucking time? Yeah. It's like they created 
like this idea that you could take your audience like the fucking like hamlin dude like the fucking pack of rats from city to city like it's it's insane who would think right. that that's possible right. it has to be such a sweet like pocket of time in history where people where transportation's cheap gas is cheap somehow people can survive without employment for like seven years you know it's whole it other was, scene whole it's, other a, scene. It, it's a whole yeah. other world but yeah i yeah. mean I, I can tell you stories from that scene. Jesus. But I just, I remember, Christ. you know, Alan told me so many times that they would show up for these gigs, not even imagining there would be 5,000 people there. <laughs> and like where they would expect it to show up at this festival, like you guys are going to play a festival and there'd be 5,000 people there. Like, like it was burning man or something. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I mean, it's, it, the, they uh, always also give you directions, which is like just Google maps leads you to like some, like you're looking around, there's nothing. And then you have to like yeah. drive around, you see a sign, you take a side road and then exactly. it's like, exactly. You're out in the fucking yeah. forest. Always. Yeah. You know? I mean, you can't, you can't just do like, you know, like a shot of fucking meth. <laughs> And, and snort LSD in the middle of Chicago, you know, somebody's going to find out. Uh, <laughs> Got to be in the forest. But I mean, the, the, whole, the whole MO is fucking ridiculous. You know, if you, if you actually take away like that, you know, the glamour and you see it for what it is, they're setting up a refugee camp and they're doing a lot of drugs. Wow. <laughs> it's like you know they get on each other's shit God, in man. chemical bathrooms. You're right. Alan showed me videos that he took from the stage that I couldn't believe, man. Yeah. Like there well, were I mean, people fucking in the audience. Yeah. Well, people are getting me too in these things now, you know, that like are running it because, because modern times are catching up with them, but they have literally tents set up to like body painting and it's all like hot women, like painting their tits. And it's like, and you don't think like a fucking that predator like that just ate a pound of like methamphetamine is going to jump on you. All right. Good luck with that. <laughs> Here's where it got weird for me. Like this is the part I didn't quite understand. I get it. Seeing all those people dancing to like Grateful Dead. I totally understand that. I, I get that. But these guys were playing music that sounded like Mahavishnu Orchestra. It was yeah. in odd meters. They kayak hard on the bass. They were basically kind of, I mean, I can't think of any other band that they were closer to than Mahavishnu. And I'm like, how in the world do these people dance to that? Well, yeah, because you're so simple. They can't dance. They can't dance to the other thing either. Yeah. Because you're so (laughs) high that you can literally, yeah, you can dance to an alarm clock. Yeah. But, but I, I think I had this moment. First of all, we, one of the, I forget which one it was, but they gave us a golf cart. And uh, me and Danny were like, we were smoking like this hippie weed and we're like, we don't have a tolerance. We were just so high. Like he was driving the golf cart and I was waving to people like the queen of England. And uh, you know, we're just like running around the festival like this after we played our gig. Uh, And I always notice that whenever I'm in this thing, like I, I don't, I don't get the music. Like I just, I don't get what they're doing. Like at the most fundamental level, it's like the idea of like looping up, looping like a one, four, five thing and playing some 
like really out of pocket stuff and blue slicks and then some really like land like playing Ionian landing on the four, just hitting that four like like you don't and everybody like acting like they don't notice, you know? And it's just like it's a very dissonant experience for me. I feel like I'm in like this weird thing and I'm always there's a big audience and I'm always walking around the booths where they sell shit, like little pipes. I noticed that for years, like I was thinking I was so high. And then I just looked at the stage, like just high out of my mind. And I was like, this is okay. And then this woman just appeared in front of me with a fucking hula hoop. And she was locking eyes with me and she had like her head, her face was all sparkly. And then another person was like looking all magical. And I started looking around. I was like, holy shit, the show isn't on stage this is the show the show is they are putting an umbrella of ionian comfort in 4-4 over this thing and they could fuck it up too but it doesn't matter as long as they maintain this thing where people can just dance you're the show like you're doing this and then people are locking guys they're addicted to each other and it's like that they're facilitating an exchange of energy between it's literally the opposite of our show like we are if you know we work there somehow i don't understand exactly how but to me what i'm doing is i am shooting my energy directly into each individual hopefully and just like you know trying to fucking tear their fucking head off that's what i'm aiming at when i'm playing and these people are just like we love you be our little village. <laughs> wow. That's, that's, it's, a, yeah. it's, a, it's a whole other experience, man. And they, they participate. It's basically, it's very, very close to the stories that Alan told me where you're, you're doing a gig, but at the same time, you're not. You're a kindergarten. You're a kindergarten teacher. Uh, yeah. You're a, you're a, this is, and this is fucking nap time. Yeah. <laughs> Get around, children. I will play you a song. Well, Here's, drink drink this fucking tea. Drink this fun. tea, and it's like yeah. everybody's just. I'm glad gonna... I brought it up because you've sort of you've sort of uh, validated everything Alan told me about that. I want a gay. I want a gay. Danny, man, I, I can't thank you enough, man. It was been, it's been really great to meet you and congratulations. Oh. And thank you for coming on the show and letting us know that there is an audience out there. <laughs> Musicians are doing it. You guys are kicking ass. Fantastic. I, I think oh, it's, thank it's, you. Well, it's I, wouldn't, I, I wouldn't have thought to come unless I heard that one podcast where you talked shit about it. And I was just like, See? what the fuck is this guy saying? This guy is the, <laughs> another person completely proving I'm full of shit every day. I love it. Thank you, man, for coming on. Where do where people find you? Is it just my, on Facebook? So, so yeah, facebook.com slash Marvin Music. We have, in Marvin, we have a free sampler, one song from every CD. If you go to marvinmusic.bandcamp.com, you can just download it. Uh, yeah. And that's totally free. And you can check out what we're about. And me and Danny also started our own podcast called Music Real Talk with Marvin. We have one episode up. Uh, the, the second one's coming out Friday, which yeah, is just us two talking shit. Uh, kind of like what you do, but uh, from a different angle. <laughs> I love it, man. We'll... We'll, we'll link it and let all our, our three fans know what you're doing. <laughs> and, um, thank you so much, man. Thank you it was for really, having me. It was really awesome. I really enjoyed it. And a happy, happy honeymoon. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> we just, we just <laughs> spoiled it all for you. <laughs> Good to see you again. Good to see you. Thanks, yeah. Danny. Bye, Good luck Bruce. to you, mate. Bye, Scott. Okay, bye. <laughs> see you guys. Later. Bye, mate.